0: Welcome to another edition of the Humble Perspectives Podcast with Steve Humble. In the last podcast, I briefly introduced my plan to read my book, For Such a Time as This, One Man's Spiritual Journey, published in 2018 by Imperium Publishing, as a podcast in episodes. In that first episode, I read the opening material and introduction to the book. In this episode I will read chapter one. First, however, I want to repeat one thing and add a few more comments about the project. First, I'm not a professional reader and I do not have a professional recording setup or an engineer. I will not be able to do much editing. There will be some stumbling and mistakes as I read. However, I hope to be able to read in a way that's personal sounding like real communication from me to you. I wrote this book in the conviction that God especially wanted me to share my story with younger people. Not because my story is so dramatic, or that I have accomplished great deeds of daring do, or have made a great splash in the world. I simply believed I needed to share how God's Holy Spirit has worked in me over many years continuing to transform me from the inside out so that Jesus can be more reflected more and more fully through my life. The book is meant to emphasize a few key realities that I've learned and sought to live out about the way God has made things to work as he accomplishes his purpose in creation along with his adopted human sons and daughters. There are several sections that include more detailed theological ideas than some might prefer. These are building blocks in the way God is building His church and kingdom, truths that He emphasized when I was young and which I am fully convinced are even more essential for who you who are younger than me so that you can live fruitfully in these turbulent and increasingly dangerous times. I hope my story will help you define these building blocks, encourage you to seek out the truth for yourselves and to build them into the way you live. However, I have advised people simply to skip through those sections if need be rather than to get bogged down. I continue to find myself asking, was what God did in so many of us half a century ago preparing for such a time as this? The so-called Asbury awakening which took place in February, the unexpectedly successful release of the movie Jesus Revolution, and a number of recent less publicized events appear to be signs that God is doing a fresh work among the present generation of young people. I pray that God will use my story to make some contribution to his work among you. And now, from For such a time as this, Chapter 1, Beginnings. It seems strange now, but I felt excited and edgy that afternoon in early 1969 when I began to read from a copy of Good News for Modern Man, the New Testament in today's English version. In light of the many translations available today, those feelings probably seem inexplicable At the time, however, the King James Version was the only true Bible, at least for me. I can remember having seen only one other translation before that, the New English Bible, which my dad and other church leaders saw as heretical. Good news for modern man even looked dangerous with its gray paperback cover and the long line drawings inside. Because of the everyday simple language, reading it was like reading a newspaper or a popular book. It seemed weird to think of God speaking in such down-to-earth, understandable words. That day, while sitting in my dorm room at Circleville Bible College, I had picked up the copy that had been given to me, by whom I can't remember, and had flipped it open and begun to read. I found myself reading in 1 Corinthians 5. At first it was simply a curiosity, but then I read, In the letter that I wrote you, I told you not to associate with immoral people. Now I did not mean pagans who are immoral or greedy or lawbreakers or who worship idols. To avoid them, you would have to get out of the world completely. What I meant was that you should not associate with a man who calls himself a brother but is immoral, or greedy, or worships idols, or is a slanderer, or a drunkard, or a lawbreaker. Don't even sit down to eat with such a person. After all, it is none of my business to judge outsiders. God will judge them. But should you not judge the members of your own fellowship? As the scripture says, take the evil man out of your group." That's verses 9 to 13, 1 Corinthians 5. The Bible does not say that, I exclaimed aloud. Two statements had jumped out at me. One, I told you not to associate with immoral people. Now I did not mean pagans. who are immoral or greedy or lawbreakers or who worship idols. To avoid them you'd have to get out of the world completely. Two, after all, it is none of my business to judge outsiders. God will judge them. But should you not judge the members of your own fellowship as the scripture says, take the evil man from your group? Immediately I grabbed up the Bible, the King James Version that is, and I looked up the passage. To my amazement The Bible did say that after all. The first statement startled me because the church tradition in which I had grown up emphasized separation from the world, which I had understood to include separation from worldly people. The second statement was startling also because I realized that, to my knowledge, our churches did not practice this judging of one another. The only situations that I could remember that had anything to do with something similar to these were a few when a pastor had committed adultery and then, having been found out, seemed to disappear out of our midst. I could not think of a single situation in which this kind of discipline had been practiced in our churches. Besides that, I realized that I did not really know enough about the personal lives of those with whom I worship to know whether there any might be involved in these types of sin. Little did I know that this simple experience would prove to be a significant step in a journey toward a new understanding of God's Church and of His purposes. I was on the way to a revolution in how I would perceive the Church and the world. I had unknowingly come to a fork in my path, in the path of my life without forethought or understanding when I began that day to wrestle with what I saw quote unquote in this text I started down a path that would take me a very different direction than I ever could have imagined. I now see, however, that the direction I chose that day was not simply a result of chance, but was largely a result of prior choices, forces, and events. Some of these were deliberate choices I had made. The way I had been brought up was a definite factor. The times were influential as well. And based on information gained years later, I believe that I was also beginning to receive a heritage rooted in the hopes and vision and journeys of my forefathers. I was born on May 19, 1949 in West Central Ohio and raised in Circleville, Ohio, a small city 25 miles south of Columbus. My parents were godly people and raised my sisters, my brother, and me to fear God. Mom and Dad had been faithful to teach us God's ways according to their best knowledge and ability. Dad was a minister, a pastor, a Bible college president, a denominational executive and administrator and a traveling teacher and evangelist, teaching and preaching in numerous churches and quite a few denominations. My mother was his right hand, vitally involved in serving Dad as well as in serving with him until the last several years of her life during which she suffered from Alzheimer's disease. Mom, mercifully, went to be with the Lord in November 2008. Dad died five years later in August 2013. I have three younger siblings, Debbie, Marvine, and Wes. Our family roots are in the Churches of Christ and Christian Union, a small non-Pentecostal holiness denomination headquartered in Circleville. My paternal grandfather, Frank Humble, a farmer, who loved and served God wholeheartedly, and whom I looked upon as a saint, was one of very early members of the Churches of Christ and Christian Union movement. He was as dedicated to God and to the church as any preacher, so zealous that in 1919 he even moved his family from Pike County in southern Ohio to Champaign County in west central Ohio in order to be part of a all-things-in-common Christian communal farm a piece of family history that even Dad didn't know until a book about the Christian Union's history was published in 1980. Grandpa's first wife, Clara, my grandmother, died when Dad was 15. However, I remember well the stories Dad and my uncles told about the integrity and sense of honor that characterized her. My maternal grandparents, Irvin and Loretta Geiger from Mount Savage, Maryland, were also genuine Christians who attended the Evangelical United Brethren Church, now part of the United Methodist Church, although they had been raised as members of a Lutheran congregation. One of my treasures is a Bible that I inherited from Mom, which had been given to her parents by the evangelist who was preaching a revival at that EUB church, when my parents, and my mom, at age eight, were converted. A few years ago, I found out that both Grandma and Grandpa were descendants of Jacob Hoxtetler, a Swiss Amish man who immigrated to Pennsylvania in 1738 in order to freely practice his faith. He became an Anabaptist hero because he held to his convictions about pacifism, even when Indians attacked his family in 1757 during the French and Indian War. Hoxtetler's wife and two of his children, one son and one daughter, were killed, while Jacob and two other sons were carried away as captives. Later he got free, remarried, and produced more children. Eventually his sons were set free as well. My maternal grandparents came from two different lines of Hoxtetler's descendants. With a heritage like this, The Holy Spirit had been after me, drawing me toward God for as long as I can remember. One of my very first memories is the time at age four when I responded to an altar call, that is an invitation, and went forward to kneel at the altar, which is a wooden rail across the front of a church sanctuary, often called the mourner's bench. This followed Dad's sermon, Come to the Feast. There I confessed my sins asked Jesus to forgive me and save me. Later, dad told me several times that at that young age I could give meaningful explanations of the two key doctrines in our church. The doctrines of salvation, also called justification, and entire sanctification. I certainly cannot remember time when I did not have a conscious understanding of these and other teachings. I was fed biblical teaching and preaching just as regularly as I was fed physical food. We were in church meetings often. We participated in a weekly Sunday school, Sunday morning worship, the Sunday evening youth meeting at 6.30 and the Sunday evening evangelistic service at 7.30. We participated in a weekly Wednesday night prayer service. We participated in the annual vacation Bible school for two weeks. We attended at least two revival meetings a year, normally consisting of church services every night for one or two weeks, sometimes even longer. There was youth camp for a week in the summer and at least one camp meeting per summer, running 10 days with three main preaching services each day, as well as the daily prayer meetings, testimony meetings, and missionary meetings. Since dad was a pastor and a denominational leader, the best preachers in the holiness movement came to our church to preach and to our home where they my mother's widely praised cooking. I still wonder if they came to our church so eagerly because they wanted to preach or because they esteemed dad or because they wanted to eat at mom's table. The church was our life. We went into the world to go to school or to shop or to play Little League baseball. And of course most dads in our church went there to make a living. But the church was our community, our entertainment, our recreation, our friends. Nearly everything that counted was in the church community. The Bible was the centerpiece of life. One of our denominational denomination's cardinal principles was, quote, the Bible is the only rule for faith and practice, unquote. We sought to make the Bible the absolute standard of what we believed and how we lived. I value that heritage deeply. At about age 12, I felt the call. Following a revival service in which the walking Bible, Reverend J. Elton Trueblood had preached, as I walked across East Ohio Street from our church building to the church parsonage, I sensed an inner awareness that God was leading me toward the ministry. I interpreted it Interpreted this call according to all I knew at that time. It obviously meant that I would be either a pastor, the leader of a local church, an evangelist, that is an itinerant preacher going from church to church preaching revival meetings, or a missionary, a Christian worker who served in a foreign nation. I never forgot that call. However, I did not make any conscious effort to respond to it other than to offer an internal yes at that moment, nor did I begin in any way to prepare myself to fulfill that call. I look back at much of my childhood as a series of salvation encounters followed by backsliding and efforts to be a normal sinner boy. Maybe because of the intense pressure that I saw my dad endure while serving as the head of our denomination in his thirties while I was a teen. I had no desire for responsibility. In fact, I did not really want the call, and therefore often sought to avoid it. I did have an extended period of spiritual fervor in the 9th and 10th grades. At that time, I participated in a small but committed youth group led by Dwight and Claudette Hershey, and I had a close friendship with Phil Conrad, who was three years older and who influenced me for the good. Then, about the time Phil graduated from high school and went on to Bible College, I backslid once again and spent a year being as rebellious as I dared, given the realities that I feared quote-unquote my parents and that I really didn't want to hurt my dad's reputation. I made a final commitment to Jesus Christ on April 22, 1966, during my junior year of high school. On March 19, 1967, Dad sent me out to preach for the first time. and I preached a sermon titled Laborers Together from 1 Corinthians 3, 8-9. After high school, I went on to attend Circleville Bible College. During my three years there, I preached on average once a week at a variety of churches. In September 1967, a classmate non- nominated me for freshman class president at the college. I declined but let them run my name for vice president and was elected. Later that fall the class president resigned and I ended up being president after all. I was conducting the January 1969 class meeting soon after New Year's Day and three weeks before the end of the first semester. Everything was normal until Helen Lovelace put forth a motion that our class sponsor an early morning prayer meeting at 6 a.m. for the next three weeks, leading up to the week of revival services that were scheduled to kick off the second semester. Who was going to be so unspiritual as to speak against or vote against such a proposal? Certainly not the class president. Motion passed. As those three weeks began, I Who prior to this had barely made class by 8 o'clock, did not crawl out of bed each morning because I desired to pray. I did not go because of any conscious hunger for God. I did not go because I was a spiritual man. I went only because I didn't want anyone to think that I was not spiritual. In spite of the bad motivation and the hypocrisy, however, in looking back I perceived that God was drawing me. Hunger did begin to grow. And even before the week of revival God began to answer, rather dramatically, specific prayers that we prayed. The hunger increased. By the time the revival services began there was some reviving already beginning to manifest. During that week I began to get even hungrier to the point of feeling some measure of spiritual desperation. In order to describe the nature of the hunger and in order to put the result of my hungering in into context, I'm a step back again and give some theological background. The holiness churches follow the Wesleyan-Arminian tradition. They are Arminian in that they hold to the views of Jacobus Arminius, 1560-1609, to 1609, a Dutch theologian of the later Reformation period who differed with certain doctrines held by the Calvinists. Arminius, as church historian Philip Schaff points out, regarded Calvin's work highly. In this next section, I will be quoting several things from Philip Schaff's History of the Christian Church, Volume 8. Next to the study of scriptures, which I earnestly inculcate, I exhort my pupils to peruse Calvin's commentaries. Arminius said. He went on to say that Calvin possessed above most others, or rather above all other men, what may be called an eminent spirit of prophecy. His institutes ought to be studied. Arminius took issue not, much, not so much with Calvin's teaching as with scholastic Calvinism, which was the more rigid theological positions developed by those who followed Calvin's teaching. Whereas John Calvin, 1509-1564, emphasized God's sovereignty over human responsibility, Arminius sought to bring back an appropriate emphasis on the importance of God's love for mankind and of man's response to God. Schaff wrote, The Calvinistic system is popularly identified with the Augustinian system and shares its merit as a profound exposition of the Pauline doctrines of sin and grace, but also its fundamental defect of combining the saving grace of God and the atoning work of Christ to a small circle of the elect and ignoring the general love of God to all mankind John 3, 16. It is a theology of divine sovereignty rather than of divine love. Arminius said. Calvin died four years after Arminius' birth. Ten years after Arminius' death, reacting to his influence, Calvinists at the Synod of Dort officially adopted the five points that came to be known as TULIP. 1. Total depravity. 2. Unconditional election or predestination. 3. Limited atonement. 4. Irresistible grace. and 5. The perseverance of the saints. The followers of Arminius' teaching stood against these doctrines either wholly or in part. To quote from Schaff again Calvinism emphasizes divine sovereignty and free grace, Arminianism emphasizes human responsibility. The one restricts the saving grace to the elect, the other extends it to all men on the condition of faith. Both are right in what they assert, both are wrong in what they deny. If one important truth is pressed to the exclusion of another truth of equal importance, it becomes an error and loses its hold upon the conscience. It may seem strange for me to look back 400 years to a theological conflict in order to discuss a spiritual conflict in the life of a 20-year-old college student especially in a postmodern world where truth is widely held to be non-existent or simply a personal viewpoint. However, this theological conflict was a major factor in the spiritual climate in which I was raised. The battle between Arminianism and Calvinism was very real to the preachers and teachers who influenced me. I had the distinct impression that Calvinists either bordered on or had crossed over into heresy. And that their doctrines, especially that of perseverance of the saints, commonly called eternal security, were tools the devil was using to deceive many people. The theological conflict was played out very graphically in my own life in the up and down, in and out nature of my walk with God. I perceive salvation to be a work of God that I must receive through an act of my faith, but keep through the acts of my obedience, thus the cycle of getting saved and backsliding spoken of earlier. Though my theology didn't change, my faith and experience changed on that 22nd day of April 1966. After a year or so of inner rebellion, expressed outwardly in relatively mild forms considering the times, As a high school junior, I attended a weekend conference sponsored by Circleville Bible College. On one level, it was a weekend of recruiting new students. On another, it was an evangelistic outreach. I participated for neither of those reasons, but rather because I knew there would be girls in attendance. While driving to the conference on Thursday evening, April 21st, my neighbor and close friend Don Benner and I made a mutual commitment not to get saved. However, late the next morning, while we were watching a choir rehearsal, all heaven broke loose. God's presence was tangibly felt in the room. As was not uncommon in the holiness tradition, some young people began to cry, others to shout for joy, and a sense of conviction and sin and of lostness and a hunger for God came upon others of us. Many began to go to the altar to repent and be born again. From past experiences, I could remember the joy that others were manifesting, and I experienced a strong desire to come home to God and to be forgiven and to feel clean and accepted again. However, I held back for what seemed like a long time, holding on to the back of the seat in front of me with white knuckles. At some point, John Maxwell, who is now a widely known Christian leader, came to me and challenged me to go forward and at last I did. I knelt at the altar for what must have been 45 minutes, alternately or even simultaneously, praying and crying and wishing and hoping and despairing. I had no real doubt that God would accept me, but I was very sure that I could not live the life afterward and thus would only have one more short-lived experience. I wanted it to be for real this time. After a while, tall, lanky Don Crooks, a college student, knelt down in front of me on the other side of the mourner's bench and got in my face. Don prayed with me and talked with me. He perceived the issue. Taking up a Bible, he opened it to 1 John 1.9 and directed me to read aloud. If we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well. I knew that verse, by memory even. I had memorized it as a member of a Bible quiz team. Don went further. He challenged me to read it again, but this time to substitute my name for the pronouns we and us. If Steve Humble confesses Steve Humble's sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive Steve Humble's sins and to cleanse Steve Humble from all unrighteousness. Then Don pointed his long bony index finger right at me and said, Steve, I dare you to take God at his word. I dare you to take hold of this promise and make it your own and to hold on to it and live by it, even to the point of necessary of standing before God in the final judgment and reminding him that you are holding him to his word. At that moment, my knowledge of the verse moved from my memory to the deepest core of my being. I saw it. I believed it. I knew it. My forgiveness from God and my acceptance by God did not depend on me or and on my ability to obey. Rather, my forgiveness and my acceptance was founded on what God had promised and in what He had provided through the death of His Son, Jesus, who had died on the cross in my place. From that day to this very day, more than 50 years later, I have never doubted God's forgiveness and accepted acceptance. Have I always been a man of faith and obedience since that day? By no means. I have failed often. I take no pleasure in my sins and shortcomings. However, I continue to rejoice in the fact that God has saved me according to His word. I do not have to save myself. The debate about calvinistic and arminian theology continues with some. Even in my own mind I can cannot fully reconcile or defend either position. Nor can I reject or refute either one, but this I do know. Once I was unsettled and insecure about my relationship to God. Now I'm grounded and secure in the reality that God has forgiven me and accepted me and that he will keep me to the end. I am not absolutely certain that there's no possibility that I could renounce or reject that relationship if I wanted to do so. However, I do know that I don't want to, and that I have no intention even to try. I do know that 1 John 1-9 is just as certain a promise to to me today as it was on April 22, 1966. Simply writing this account brings back some of the wonder and the joy of that reconciliation and coming home. Thanks be to God. Even so, there is yet another theological matter that was a significant factor in my spiritual desperation during the week of Second Semester Revival in January sixty-nine. Before I go on reading, I just got to tell you something, today, as I record this, it is April 22nd, 2023. For 57 years, God has kept me by His grace. I just am nearly overwhelmed at this moment with thankfulness and joy and gratitude for His goodness. Okay, back to the theological issue that was another significant factor in my spiritual desperation during the second semester revival in January 1969. Our church tradition was not only Arminian, it was also and even primarily Westland. John Wesley, 1703 to 1799, or 1791, excuse me, was an Arminian and he took a strong stand against certain Calvinistic teachings. Even so, Wesley esteemed some Calvinists and for many years worked closely with fellow Methodist George Whitefield, the great evangelist, who held to Calvinist theology. In fact, Wesley preached at Whitefield's funeral saying, Quote, Have we read or heard of any person since the Apostles who testified the gospel of the grace of God through so widely extended a space, through so large a part of the habitable world? Have we read or heard of any person who called so many thousands, so many myriads of sinners to repentance? Above all, have we read or heard of any who has been blessed and A blessed instrument in God's hand of bringing so many sinners from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God." I include this quotation because Wesley, though an adamant opponent of some Calvinistic doctrine, was not an opponent of those who held that doctrine, something that cannot be said of all who follow in the Wesleyan tradition. In my own life, however, it was not Wesley's Arminianism that was a factor in my spiritual crisis in early 1969. Rather, it was Wesley's doctrine of the entire sanctification or Christian perfection that was the issue for me. Wesley's reading of the early church fathers, especially those from the Eastern churches, and his reading of William Law, author of Christian Perfection and Serious Call, influenced him in the development of this teaching. It's beyond the scope of this book to examine and to evaluate Wesley's thought in detail. What matters here is the understanding that I received two centuries later in the Wesleyan holiness movement, and the impact of that understanding on my own spiritual journey. I was taught that entire sanctification, sometimes called the baptism in the spirit in holiness circles, is, quote, a second definite instantaneous work of grace subsequent to the new birth, i.e. regeneration and justification." Sanctification in this view is the act of God in response to the human faith in which, after full surrender and consecration of one's life, the believer's heart is cleansed from inbred sin. According to this doctrine, in this experience, the old man, carnal nature, the flesh, Greek word sarks, is crucified and eradicated so that the believer no longer has the tendency or bent towards sin and is free to obey God. This Christian perfection is not understood to preclude the possibility of the person making mistakes because of the human weakness of his emotions and understanding. But it is understood to set him free so that he does not have to commit willful sins. It is seen as a perfecting in motive, a perfecting of the heart, and a perfecting in love, rather than as an absolute perfection of behavior, or as some would say, a sinless perfection. It is important in understanding this teaching to take into account the Wesleyan definition of sin. Quote, sin is a willful transgression of a known law of God, unquote. This definition is based on James 4.17, which says, quote, to him who knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Unquote, a statement understood to be a further clarification of the broader definition of sin given in 1 John 3-4, quote, sin is the transgression of the law, unquote. This more limited understanding of what constitutes a sin helps explain how such a high standard can be taught. However, what was taught and the experience that I was looking for were not one and the same. While I could quote these theological tenets and thought that I understood them, Two days after coming to faith in regard to God's forgiving and justifying me, I went forward to the altar again and began to seek entire sanctification. This search continued quite often from that point in April 66 through 1968. I would pray for sanctification, sometimes in public meetings, sometimes in private prayer, until I found relief from the internal struggle and felt able to claim the experience of sanctification. However, within a few days after the prayer, I would find myself struggling with the same temptations and often falling into sin yet again. I did not question God's forgiveness when I repented, but I could not continue to profess sanctification when I saw no evidence that the tendency or bent towards sinning had been eradicated. Over the course of those months of seeking, there were periods when I just went on living, enjoying the forgiveness of God. However, there were also periods of heaviness and condemnation because I could not live up to the standard of Christian perfection that I expected of myself. During January 1969, after the early morning prayer meetings began, this search had become a kind of spiritual desperation. On Wednesday morning of the week of school revival, during a free hour before chapel I went to the men's prayer room in the old block dorm there at the Ohio Street campus of Circleville Bible College, which is now Ohio Christian University, and got down to the bottom line with God. I cried out to the Lord for help. I admitted to Him that I couldn't live the life. I found myself saying to the Lord that I was going to quit testifying to some experience of sanctification. I committed to the Lord that from that day forward. I would give Him the glory for any successes in my life, and that I would be honest about my failures and struggles. I told the Lord of my desperation for help from Him. At some point during that hour, I came to peace with God. I knew that something significant had transpired. I wasn't sure what had changed, but I left that room with awareness that my relationship with God had changed in some way. I had confidence that I would see changes in my life in the days ahead. Looking back from the vantage point of time and further experience, I believe that there in that prayer room I received what is commonly called the baptism in or infilling of the Holy Spirit. I believe that the Holy Spirit awakened my spirit and came to dwell in me when I was born again. However, following this subsequent experience of the Holy Spirit in 1969, I experienced significant change in two areas of my life. First, a hunger for and an insight into Scripture began to grow. I have already related one of the first and more dramatic times of insight when I saw 1 Corinthians 5 in a new way. The parameters of my understanding and some of my assumptions began to change. Second, my preaching changed. For two to three years following this prayer room encounter with God, No matter how diligently I prepared for my preaching engagements, engagements, and I did prepare, I consistently was moved by the Spirit to preach extemporaneously a different message. From that time on, I preached with a different urgency, and as far as I can tell, with more effectiveness. Although I began to have new insight into the nature of church, which was to bring major change in my journey, I did not yet perceive the reality of the Church being the body of Christ and the importance of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The journey had begun, but the discovery of those realities was yet to come. I must mention one person who came into my life briefly at this point. Alan Barnes entered our Bible College the very week of that revival and was assigned to be my roommate. Alan was a member of the United Methodist Church. The Methodist churches are the historical outworking of the Holy Club, of which Oxford University students John Wesley, Charles Wesley, and George Whitefield were members. Members of this group were so disciplined in their pursuit of God that they were derisively called Methodist by fellow students. To be sure, there are many godly Bible-believing Methodists these days. However, we also knew that many Methodists did not emphasize the holiness doctrines these days the same way we did, and clearly there were many liberal Methodists who, in our view, had basically departed from the faith. Thus, I did not expect much from Alan. He was quiet and studious and not very vocal. The first thing about Alan that got my attention was his struggle with the way prayer was practiced in our church services. Our customary way of praying at least once during each service was to call upon one person to lead out in a time of prayer. That person would speak out a few words and then the room would erupt with virtually everyone praying aloud simultaneously for a period of time. Normally the person appointed to lead out would continue praying aloud until everyone else had quit and then he or she would close the prayer with the obligatory, in Jesus name we pray, amen. We called this United Prayer. And I grew up thinking this was the way all spiritually alive Christians prayed. The fact that our way of praying bothered Alan was a sure sign to me that he was from one of the cold formal liberal churches. Alan, however, however was concerned about whether or not United Prayer violated the instruction regarding church meetings found in 1 Corinthians 1440, quote, let all things be done decently and in order, unquote. However, he came to peace about our way of praying when he found Acts 4.24, which seemed like it might indicate this type of united prayer, Quote, and when they heard that, that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. Unquote. I had to take a closer look at Alan when I realized how serious he was about following the Bible. I had never even thought to major our church customs according to the scripture. Then I began to notice that Alan was studying the Bible, studying it a lot. In questioning him, I discovered he was studying the scriptures personally, often for two to three hours a day, in addition to his class assignments. I would never known anyone like this, but Alan's example whetted my own appetite for scripture in those days. Alan usually went home for the weekend. And one Monday, several weeks in the semester, I was politely asking him about his weekend. He told me he had spent much of the weekend participating in a conference. Curious, I began to draw out of him the nature of the conference. At some point, he used the word charismatic to describe the conference. To my recollection, it was the first time I had heard this word used in any similar context, and I asked him to explain what he meant by it. In that explanation, Alan spoke about the gifts of the Spirit and about his own experience of speaking in tongues. To be sure, I vaguely remembered hearing strange stories about an Episcopal priest, Dennis Bennett, who had begun to speak in tongues back in the 1950s. Mostly, I associated speaking in tongues with Pentecostals. Everything that I'd heard about tongues up to that point was that it was either extreme emotionalism. An odd concern for us, since in our churches shouting, jumping, running in the aisles to praise God were were not uncommon actions, or else it was the work of the devil deceiving people. I knew, of course, that the members of the first church in Jerusalem had spoken in tongues on the day of Pentecost, but I had been taught that this was a miraculous ability to speak in a foreign language for evangelistic purposes, very different from the carnal behavior that Paul had had to correct in 1 Corinthians 14. This was different though. Alan was certainly not an extremist. He did not display much emotion at all. He'd even been concerned about whether or not united prayer violated scriptural instruction, yet here he was telling me that he quite often prayed in tongues in his personal prayer life. Frankly, I had no framework with which to process this information. However, I could not deny the presence of God in Allen's life. His hunger for God and the scriptures was far greater than my own hunger for these things. In that semester, I never saw anything in his life that was inconsistent with the Christian message or with his testimony. Allen left school after one semester, and though I heard about him occasionally in years to come, I have never seen him again. However, his life left an indelible impression for good, and the discovery that Alan spoke in tongues was a seed that he unknowingly planted in me. That seed would produce a harvest that I never could have foreseen.